Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm your host, Doug Stanton. Victoria, or V.E. Schwab, has written over 20 books for both young and adult readers. She's known for her Shades of Magic fantasy series, as well as standalone novels such as The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Her latest book is called The Fragile Threads of Power. Victoria talked with journalist and lead writer for the Traverse City Ticker, Beth Milligan, at Lars Hoxted Auditorium in Traverse City, Michigan. Beth asked Victoria how she came to write the Shades of Magic series. Sure, I really wanted to write a portal fantasy. I kind of feel like there's two camps of fantasy. There's obviously more than that. I'm going to be super reductive, and I'm going to use the two old deads to prove old dead guys to prove a point. There's the Tolkien's and the Lewis's, right? And the thing about Tolkien-style fantasy is it's very grand, and you will only ever get to visit Middle Earth through the pages of that book. But the thing about the Lewis-style fantasy is it tells you that somewhere in your house there is a cupboard with no back, and you should go and find it. And I've always wanted to write that kind of fantasy. And I've written, up until Shades of Magic, things which hugged even closer to reality and really just skimmed the surface of the fantastical. With Shades of Magic, I really wanted to write a portal fantasy, something that starts in our world and then departs from it. So I also... (laughs) I'm going to give myself away here. I also don't really love when fantasy feels like homework. So when there's like m- front material in a book, like a, a map and like some glo- genealogy that's like I hundreds little, of years, old. something in my brain goes like, but that's front matter and that's homework. And I grew up in the anime school of world building, which says like, you're going to figure it out as you need it. Like, I don't need to know things until I need to know them. I don't need to know the shape of the world unless I'm walking in it. Right. And so I wanted to write the kind of fantasy that I wanted to read. And essentially, instead of developing four worlds with four geographies and four maps, I thought, maybe we can approach this philosophically. I'm going to design one world four ways. And instead of designing geographies, I'm going to design the exact same geography. And I'm going to build on it four worlds, each with a different relationship to magic. So there's the gray world, our world, where magic has been forgotten which is why we don't have it. There's the red world where magic has been worshiped like a god and the people have flourished because of it. There's the white world where magic has been bound in servitude and is resisting and the world is dying for it. And there is the black world where magic became so grand and so intrinsic to the people that it consumed everything and burned the world to ash. So I designed the worlds first and then I populate them. But one of the very first images I had in my head before I ever came up with these worlds, I sometimes get a visual like a still frame. And the image was a young man in a bright red coat walking through a wall in the world and colliding with a girl dressed as a boy. Still frame in black and white and red, I knew nothing else. And so because I had no context for it, I put it in the back of my head and I moved on. And then when I came around to this idea of the four Londons and I realized that he was walking through a wall, I realized that he could be walking from one London into another. And then the questions start, the what ifs, the why is he running? Why is she running? What happens in the collision? So that was the origin story of A Darker Shade of Magic, was a story about Kalmaresh, who is a prince and a smuggler who comes into possession of a stone that he should not have, and before he can get rid of it, he gets his pocket picked by a cross-dressing thief named Delilah Bard, and everything goes catastrophically wrong. Um, So that was the origin. And then what's interesting is I... I'm a creature of parallels. I'm a creature of echoes. I love to come back full circle. And so the premise that starts A Fragile Threads of Power is that a girl comes into possession of something she absolutely should not have and everything goes horribly wrong. (laughs) Um, It's a very different thing. And so basically what happens is towards the end of Shades of Magic, Delilah Bard does a deal with a captain of a floating market, a black glass eye in exchange for a favor and the favor is never called in. And for the last five and a half years, readers have come up to me at every event and been like, I love this series, but there is a favor in A Conjuring of Light that is never called in, to which I said, yes, I know, thank you. (laughs) Um, And so essentially what happens is we meet Tess, the girl on the cover of Fragile Threads, 
and she is running a repair shop in Red London. She is 15, she is a runaway, and she has the ability to not only see the threads of magic, but to change them, to touch them, to manipulate them. And she is putting this talent to good use by fixing broken things. And somebody who does not seem to be in a good way <laughs> comes into the repair shop one afternoon and dumps on her table a broken object. So broken she doesn't even know what it's supposed to be, but her curiosity is piqued and she takes it on to fix it. And at the exact same time, Delilah Bard is called back to the floating market and the captain says to her, something has been stolen from my ship. It is badly damaged, but it is still dangerous. Go and get it back for me. And that's how we bridge the shades of magic and the fragile threads of power. So how long then yes. will people have to wait for the rest of this trilogy once we get into this exciting adventure? I mean, we don't answer that question. I don't, here's what I'll say. I don't believe in writing cliffhangers at the beginning of series. So you'll have to wait a little while because I am but one small human and I, I'm not a fast writer. And your book is a TARDIS, what you're holding. If you're holding the finished edition, it is much bigger on the inside than it appears. It is 640 pages. It does not look like it is 640 pages. It is a magic trick. Please believe me when I say that it is 640 pages. They took a year and a half to write. So um, here's what I will say. This does not end on a cliffhanger. I believe in saving the day, but not the world in each book. Because you know, in a series, sometimes what you often find is like, here's the series arc, and then here's the individual book arcs. And some writers will give you two thirds of the first book arc and then hack it there and that's your cliffhanger. And it drives me as a reader up a wall. It's cheating, it doesn't feel right. So since I play the Marvel Coda game, which is that I close the arc and then I just start the next one and I hack it right there. Exactly. Little end credits. Exactly, my end credit sequence is the cliffhanger but the story is resolved. And so I try very hard to do that so that the weight is a little less painful. Okay. Fair enough. So I want to talk about, we were just talking about Tolkien and Lewis, and we were having this conversation backstage a little bit. And I think this is a really important conversation to have because, first of all, Victoria is the first fantasy author who has been here for the Writer Series, yes. which is fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for coming, truly. Which is, which is so great. But, you know, I think there's, there's a little bit of a stereotype that I want to talk to you yes. about, which is that I think some readers, and there's even some critics or publishers who treat fantasy as though it's kind of a secondary genre. Absolutely. That it's, that it's you know, either YA or it's silly or it's not real literary fiction. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to you about this because I think you and I have a similar belief about something, which is that you don't have to believe in magic, literally, but we all have this hunger for more wonder in our lives, exactly. for adventure, for mystery. And so I don't think we're just born to be nine to five desk rats. And I wonder what the idea of magic represents to you in real life. Well, as I said, I'm of the Lewis school, or more recently, I'm of the Neil Gaiman school, right? I am of the school that tells you this is the world and you think you know it all, but actually you know nine tenths of it. And the important thing is the one-tenth that you do not know and have not found. And you're right, there's an absolute conception of what it means when I say the word fantasy. When I say fantasy and you see fantasy with a capital F, you think dragons, you think elves, you think wizards, you think a very specific school, you think a sprawling thing. The fact is the vast majority of stories that we consume are fantastical. I mean, science fiction readers, 99% of what they're reading is science fantasy. Like, Star, Star Wars is a fantasy. <laughs> it is a space fantasy. It is not science fiction. Science fiction is predictive. Science fiction would be very, very dry, and often is, if it's what you like is actually science fantasy. Fantasy does not need to mean grand schemes in worlds some so different from ours. Fantasy is a ghost story. Fantasy is family lore. Fantasy is anything which cannot be accounted for by the metrics of reality. So what I love and what I love as a reader and so what I love as a writer is the idea of prying open the thresholds, letting doubt creep in. I don't need you to believe with 100% of yourself. I just need to make you doubt with 1% of yourself. And that's enough. One of my favorite story examples of this is that I wrote Vicious, which is about supervillains. It's a really grounded supervillain tale. It basically is about two pre-med students who discover the key to superpowers are near-death experiences, and they set out to manufacture their own abilities using their own death and resurrection. It is a story set in our world, 
in a fictional city, but very much in our landscape and our time. And I tried to make the fantasy element hug as close to medical knowledge as possible. What I did was I took medical reality and then I just nudged it like you would nudge a scale, just like one little step further, because there are examples of very temporary um, adrenal responses to trauma that allow a mother to lift a car off her child, things like that. And I was like, let's just take it and make it permanent, right? I tried to keep it as grounded as naturalistic as possible. And one day, ooh, someone has a smartwatch. I heard it. <laughs> one day, a man emails me at about four in the morning, which the, the timestamp on this email is my favorite part because it means he was awake. And he emails me and he's like, okay, hey, I just finished Vicious. I just have to ask. There's no like documented cases of this phenomenon <laughs> happening, right? And I was like, oh my God, I've done it. I've done it because this guy finished the book, stayed awake, had the thought, and it bothered him enough that he had to send an email. And I was like, I have done it. I have seeded, I have sown doubt in your world. And that's really all I want to do. I want, obviously I want you to go on an adventure with me. I want a movie to play in your head like it plays in my head. I want to make you believe in magic, of course. But barring that, if I cannot make you believe if I cannot make you Ned Tuttle in this series, who essentially lives in our world and just so desperately wants to be a magician that it's like very slowly starting to happen for him, like it's just slowly starting. If I can't give you that, what I can give you is the slight suspicion that behind one of these curtains is a space that's not quite where it should be. That there's an oddity somewhere in the world, that there's a crack somewhere in the world, that you're lying awake at night. I mean, horror does it all the time. You're lying in bed at night and you hear a crack and your mind says, it's a monster. Your mind says there's something under the bed. That's fantasy. You are telling yourself a story and it lives in the doubt. So I'm fine with that too. I'm fine with just making you wonder. Yeah. Uh, which is so fantastic. And it sounds like that mindset maybe has impacted your decision a little bit to live in Scotland. Mm. You uh, spoke with Elle Magazine. There's a really great article out in Elle Magazine this week that I recommend people check out. But you talked about liking old places that haven't felt the need to, quote, choose between the realistic and the supernatural. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about Scotland and how that's different than what you find in the U.S. So Scotland is a very haunted place. <laughs> but the thing about Scotland and the UK on the whole is that the relationship that the people have to the supernatural is so mundane. Like they don't make a big deal of it. I lived in a haunted house in Liverpool actually before I moved to Scotland. I lived in this house for two months. It tells you how haunted it was because we, I only made it two months. And I um, had a ghost. I had a very, very scary experience one day where there were eight other people that lived in this house. I actually lived in a garden shed behind the house. Imagine a Home Depot shed. It's very much not glamorous. One day I'll write a memoir. Um, and I, so I had to come into the house to use any of the facilities. And I am alone in the house for the very first time. There are eight other people that live in this house, so you are never alone. But I am alone and I'm enjoying it. I'm in the living room, I'm spreading out, I need to go to the bathroom. And to go to the bathroom, you have to go through the living room, through a laundry room, and to a bathroom. I do this, I go through the living room, through the laundry room, to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, come back out, through the laundry room, to the living room, realize I've forgotten something. So I turn around, 30 seconds have passed, go back through the living room, and turn to go into the laundry room, and the dryer has moved two feet in front of the doorway. It is not on. It's not shaking itself over two feet at a time. I take one look at this dryer that has moved two feet soundlessly in front of a doorway that I have moved, I have walked to 30 seconds before and I just went, no. And I turn around. <laughs> no, thank you. And That's I left right. the house and I sat on the front step for an hour waiting for one of my other housemates to come home and they did. And I was like, you are never going to believe this. Don't call me crazy. I think this house is haunted. To which my housemate says, yeah, no shit. And just like walks inside. <laughs> and that right there is what I'm getting at, which is that like, whether or not you meet a person who says they believe in the supernatural or magic or a ghost in Scotland, every single person you meet has had a ghost experience. And they don't question it. This paradox lives in their mind. You do not have to be a believer to have interacted with the spiritual realm on a daily basis. And I had a friend say to me, I think it's because it's an island. The density of the population over so many thousands of years means that you simply cannot step anywhere that is not actively haunted. 
I love it. Now, Edinburgh goes a step above. Like, there is a street in Edinburgh called Mary King's Close. It used to be an open-air market. And the city built itself vertically. So it was an open-air market, and now it's down below. The problem is that during the plague, some people in that open-air market were very sick. And so the city decided to brick them up while they were still alive into the walls. <laughs> and then they just covered the market. And they were like, it's underground now. <laughs> and they closed it for like 200 years. And I don't know why they ever chose in the 60s or the 70s, I believe, to open it again. Like, we should have just left it. It should have stayed. The point is, that's what you're walking on. That's what you're walking on every single day. And so ghosts are just a part of the fabric. And whether or not you have these supernatural experiences, the fact is you just feel it in the air. There is an electrical charge. There is an ancientness to this place. You touch stones on a daily basis that are thousands of years old. You walk in footsteps that are thousands of years old. And I think you can feel it in every single stone in that city. And I just, as a person who is constantly looking for the world to be weirder than it is, you don't have to look very hard. It's really inspiring as someone who just wants to be inspired in the particularly creeped out way. Like, I, I've never met a reality story, like a real story, that I haven't wanted to turn strange. I've never been working on a story and thought, you know what this doesn't need? Monsters. Like, I, my heart wants to make it weird. And so I live in a place that just encourages this oddness. I think it's magical. It's, it's nice to go through life with that sort of mystery yes. and wonder. Um, I highly recommend, recommend that people follow you on social media or your newsletter. You're very engaged with your fans. You talk, especially if you're interested in writing or the creative process. Victoria's really open about, I think, the challenges, the ups and downs of that. Um, one of the videos that you posted that I enjoyed is you said, never underestimate the power <laughs> of spite. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Truly. Yes. <laughs> Um, and you've also talked about having an adversarial relationship with fear. So a lot of us deal with these emotions, with spite, with fear. Um, so how are you able to put those things to good use? I think it's in my makeup. Like, I think that there are personality uh, differences that make it worth it. I think also with there's like mental health stuff, right? So like, I, I am a very anxious person. That anxiety manifests in kind of not feast or famine with writing. I need consistency. Like, people will always ask me why I outline my story so rigorously, and, like, the truth is because if I don't have a roadmap, I will tell myself that I am not good enough, that I don't have enough story, that I should go ahead and quit. Like, I need to give myself empirical evidence that goes against what my voice in my head is telling me. Um, I think, I just believe in the transparency of it all. I started in publishing really young. I was 19 when I wrote my first book and got my first agent. I was 21 when my first book sold. And um, the thing about writing and publishing is that it's really lonely. That like this is the this is the 0.1% of my time. This is incredible. I will feast on this. It's why I want you to write me those notes because that's the other 99% of the time what I need. Because you're alone and you're alone with your work and. Um, when you're struggling and you don't see anybody else struggling or anyone else talking about the struggle, it can feel like a reflection of your ability instead of the fact that the act is hard. When all you see is good news from everybody else, when all you see is how wonderful everyone's feeling about their book. I've never felt that way about a first draft in my life. Whenever I have author friends who are like, oh my God, I wrote this great scene today and I love it. I love my whole book. I'm like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to have that be the voice in your head instead of mine, which is like, burn it down. Um, so like a lot of my process, a lot of why I do what I do is adversarial. Yeah. I mean, it's like a very, I'm going to give you a weird experience, which is that like, so I had an eating disorder as a teenager. I've been really open about it, but I never actually talk about like why I was able to get through it. Like what was the stopping point for me? And this is really proof of how adversarial I am. I get to college. I decide I want to get help and I go to see a college nutritionist and I'm like, I need help. And I talk with her, and I'm really vulnerable for the very first time about it. I'm like, I really want to get better. And she, she's like, yeah, I think we could like cut your calories down by at least another 500 a day. Oh, and no. And the, the, the anger, like I immediately, I had like been stuck for four years. And like the, you know, the flames out of the side of my head, me, the anger I felt in that moment where I was like, how dare you? And that cracked 
something I had not been able to do myself for years. So I think I have taken that and just put it into everything. And when any publisher says it's not good enough or you won't be successful enough or you're not commercial enough, I get that, how dare you? Like I will, you will rue the day. I will raise this to the ground. Like I get so weird about it. I don't know why I'm like this. I'm an only child and maybe that. I don't know. I don't know. I have friends who their anxiety makes them go very still. And my anxiety take makes me like spin. And I need something to do with the spinning. So I channel it into work. I channel it into disproving other people. Also, because what's the what's the alternative? I listen to them? I quit? Like, thankfully, I, I have learned to use empirical evidence in my favor. So like the voice in my head tells me, I can't write a book. And so every time I finish writing a book, I'm like, ha ha. Like you have to understand. <laughs> that what I think about when I'm signing all the books that you're holding is that I won. Because that book and I were in a battle. The story and I were in a battle and the whole time I was writing it, there was a good chance that I was not going to win. The story was going to win and never get told and I was gonna fail. And the act of signing your books is an act of victory over the thing which felt for years like it was going to win. So I think I just take everything and I make it, I, I think, I get mad. Like, I don't get sad and I don't get still. I just get really angry. And I can feast on that anger for a really long time. Like, I'm only Addie LaRue for the first 50 years when she's, like, fueled by anger. <laughs> and after that, she goes into hope, and I'm like, no, I don't get that. Um, but those, like, those anger-filled years, I get them. I get so mad. Well, I, gen I, I usually believe women should be more mad. <laughs> this is the thing. I think, yes. <laughs> Can I say, I'm really excited, and I know we're only talking about Fragile Threads, but like, I'm very excited because the next book that I have, so one of the reasons that Threads 2 will take just a teeny bit longer, is that like, I like to alternate projects, and my next book is a standalone, and it's my, it's the angry reaction to Addie. Like, so Addie LaRue is a story of immortality and hope and joy, and my next book is a story about immortality and hunger and rage. And specifically about, like, for, for women and for queer women especially, like, this sense of, and, like, the vitriol that I have been able to put into this book has been the most cathartic thing ever. Like, I thought it was cathartic when I wrote Vengeful and Marcella Riggins, who's the villain in Vengeful, just starts burning men to ash when they don't let her finish her sentence. And I was like, that felt good. <laughs> and then... And then I get to my next book, which I lovingly call Toxic Lesbian Vampires, but it's because it, I can't say the real name. And it's so angry. And I love it because I've always given my women ambition. I give them ambition and I give them an emotion. Um, but it's like the first time I've really leaned into pure rage. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> Just channeling myself in it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, well, that's a, that's a good transition to a question I had. So I'm, I'm in a women's pinball league here in Whoa. Traverse City. Some of them are here tonight. <laughs> Shout out to Bells and Chimes. They're here tonight. <laughs> um, but the reason I mention this is because it, pinball reminds me of fantasy in that it's a fun activity that theoretically should appeal to everyone but has historically been dominated by men. And that has made a lot of women feel like this isn't for me or it's nerdy or it's yeah. inaccessible. Um, when you create a space where women play pinball, other women are like, oh my God, that looks so fun, I wanna do that. And I think you have done that with your books, which is you have centered a lot of female and queer characters and made people feel like they belonged in a space where I think they've been excluded for a long time. Um, and I was curious what your experience was like as both a reader and an author coming into fantasy where that genre hasn't been welcoming often to either women or queer people. Oh yeah, I mean, let's get back to the rage because <laughs> again, so Near Witch, my very first novel comes out. I'm allowed to do my very first book event for it. I'm incredibly excited. It's a fantasy conference and I get there. And the thing about your very first fantasy conference is they will try and put you on the worst panel possible because you're nobody. So they're not gonna give you like a nice time slot. They're not gonna give you a big fancy panel. You're just gonna get stuck somewhere and you're gonna be really glad that you're there. So I get put on a 10 p.m. metafiction panel. And I'm like, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. I'm 22, I'm just so excited. I have a foot in the door. And I get there, just ready and raring to go. And I want you to picture the stage. It's like this, there's a table on the stage. It's a 65-year-old white man with a beard, a 65-year-old white man with a beard, a 65-year-old white man with a beard, and a blank seat with my name. 
And I was like, great. I get up on that stage, and the 65-year-old white man with the beard on the end nearest me turns to me and goes, oh, darling, I think you're in the wrong room. Oh, no, no, no. And I was like, oh, really? And I sat down, and I made sure I was the most interesting person. It was not hard, but I was the most (laughs) interesting person on that panel. And the fact is, that happened now, like 13 years ago, I can recall every single detail. And this happened again and again and again. I would have, what breaks my heart, mostly women. I would have women come up to me at signings and say, oh my God, I am so glad I didn't know you were a woman. I never would have picked this up. And I was like, for real? Yes, gross, for real? And the thing is that just happens again and again and it happened every time I went anywhere. And like, again, it just fuels. I'm like, yes, kindling for my fire. How excellent. Um, is, that, is that you had to use, did you feel like you had to use initials when you, for your pen name? Weirdly, if I could go back, I would have used initials from the start. Part of that has to deal with gender and sexuality and the fact that like, I just feel better with the gender neutral pseudonym, but it was a huge factor. And it's interesting because my editor is a woman and um, we had very differing opinions on why I should or should not use the name. Because her philosophy was like, burn them all down, be Victoria Elizabeth and declare it proudly. And I am a little more Machiavellian than that because my thought was, if I have that name on the cover, someone's not gonna pick the book up. And if I have VE on the cover, someone's gonna pick the book up read it, like it, and then have to deal with their own shit. <laughs> and like have to deal with their own feelings about uh, like, oh, I didn't think I liked women writing. And I'm like, but you liked this, so now you're gonna have a question about yourself. Um, and so that's why, and like I say, I've won out in that. And, and I love having my name on the cover. Victoria Elizabeth is also a very long name. Like I love my mother <laughs> and the name really suits me. I didn't have a name for the first two weeks of my life because my parents quote wanted to live with me <laughs> and um, <laughs> a philosophy I extend to my characters even now. But um, yeah, the fact is like, it's not easy to be a woman in fantasy. It's not easy to be a queer woman in fantasy, but I also feel like you have to translate your success into an open door for everyone that comes after you. And the fact is like, I am very grateful for your support because the more successful I am and the more out and open that I am, the easier it is for the publisher to make the monetary arguments to buy more from people like me. Because that's the fact. At the end of the day, it's a business. And if the 65-year-old white dudes with the beard are selling better, then the argument is that they can keep buying the 65-year-old white man with the beard. No, no one is ever going to stop publishing the 65-year-old white man with the beard. Don't feel bad for them. They're fine. The point is that, like, it's really easy to get pigeonholed. I think I have made that hard for a lot of my publishers because from the beginning, I've like, I shall never write the same thing twice. (laughs) It drives everyone crazy. But um, so I've worked hard not to be pigeonholed in terms of what I write, but in terms of identity, of course. Like, I will... I have to fight to get sent a broad spectrum of things. I have to fight to make sure that my marketing is as wholesome, like in terms of, I don't mean wholesome, I mean like across the board. It's day 12 of tour, I'm losing words. Um, To be as well-rounded so that it's not like every single piece of marketing I have falls into just the niche of who I am. The other part is that like, it's the same reason that I write the queer characters that I do, the diverse characters that I do, the disabled characters that I do, is that It informs you, it doesn't define you. It informs your identity. It it is always gonna be a piece of you. My queerness and my gender are pieces of me, but they're not the entirety of me and I don't ever wanna be reduced to it and so I don't want my work to be reduced to it. Um, So yeah, it's not easy though. I mean, you constantly end up as either excluded or the token, right? Like you're always the one that they like, are like, well, we've got one, (laughs) so we're fine. Look, yeah, we're inclusive, woo. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I love the repackages on the covers is they're just like overtly gayer. Like this this is a lot gayer. Like it's got so many colors on it. It makes me very happy, especially because I don't wear many colors. So it feels like a counterbalance. I mean, I'm like, I'm not gonna say that it's hard for me now. I have the luxury of success. Mm-hmm. It's a luxury I try to translate into ambition and try to translate into making sure that I open the doors behind me. I almost exclusively blurb debut authors. 
almost exclusively blurb queer authors or black authors or somehow authors that aren't gonna get the same marketing plan by default that a lot of their straight white cis counterparts are gonna get. Um, I try to make the good choices where I can to help make sure that it only continues to move in the right direction. You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up in the second half, more from fantasy writer V.E. Schwab. You're listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton, a founder of the year-long book festival held in the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Now back to Beth Milligan talking with V.E. Schwab. Well, I mean, the other thing that's refreshing about that is, you know, like you were saying, it's not just that you have female or queer characters in your books, but it's how they're represented. So, you know, you have something like Game of Thrones, which is a series and and a show that I love, But, you know, it gets um, some criticism, I think, fairly, because a lot of that show is about violence against women. It's about degrading women. Um, So you have these characters in your books who are not just the victims of violence or not just tokens, but they have their own agency. They're three-dimensional. I think that kind of representation, you can't just have the characters in there, but they need to be fully formed, three-dimensional human characters. Yeah, and it's tricky because, honestly, at the end of the day, I, I write mostly villains, or people that we like classically describe as villains. And so you have to be careful, right? Because there's so much pressure when you write a character from any marginalization that they must be unimpeachable. They're not allowed to have flaws because then what are you saying? Are you like saying that those people from that background have flaws, like have that flaw? It becomes reductive in an extreme way. And so there was a period of time where it felt like you had to put every character that wasn't your default on a pedestal. And I hate that because all my characters are damaged. All my characters are broken. All of my characters are ambitious and hungry. All of my characters have the moral gray in them. In fact, the thing about toxic lesbian vampires is that I actually just really wanted to write a lesbian villain. And then I was like, well, I'm gonna have a problem there because even though I'm a lesbian, they're gonna say that I made the villain lesbian and therefore I see lesbians as villains. Some are. Um, <laughs> so I was like, here's my trick. I'm gonna make all three of them villains. So that way it's like a little game of whatever the, you're trying to find the coin. I'm like, haha, <laughs> you can't tell. And so I think I'm just like more in favor of allowing characters to have the degree of complexity that traditionally only went to your like chosen one dude, bro. And I'm like, I want everyone to be messy. I want everyone to be weird and like, We've come a long way, but there's still a huge amount of pressure when you introduce a character that has been so often cast to the margins of the story, to the edge of the spotlight. There's so much pressure to make them like a sweet baby angel. But I don't really have many sweet baby angels in my books. I think that's boring. I want everyone you read, especially in this, to be a potential villain. Do not trust that anyone you meet will stay on the side that they start. Um, Which is a good lesson for life. (laughs) Yes, it's a great lesson for life. So um, a couple years ago, there was a controversy with a Russian publisher who cut a queer storyline from Shades of Magic under censorship pressure. You expressed your outrage about that. You wrote a really beautiful coming out essay for Oprah's website, which if you haven't read, you should Google that essay. She wrote really beautifully about this. 
Um, what struck me is a few years ago, I think we expected this kind of censorship and homophobia from a place like Russia. But very unfortunately, we're in an era now in the US where we have a lot of targeted discrimination against the LGBTQ plus community. We have rampant attempts at book censorship. <laughs> in fact, um, downstate in Grand Rapids, Addie LaRue was removed from a school library. Um, so right here in our state, I know, which is horrible. So I want to talk about what it's like for you personally and professionally in this climate and what you think about readers, especially young readers, having access to queer authors and queer storylines. I am so grateful for the internet because it decreases the power of people to prevent stories from reaching readers. Obviously, everything that's being done is an... In, it, is inhibiting and is maddening and is upsetting and is egregious. But I am also just very grateful that people have other means of access that like really all it is is a roadblock. All it is is a roadblock that shows people's asses. Like it's all it is is a roadblock that shows people being their worst. Like they're exposing themselves. They're telling on themselves here. Here's my philosophy regardless of what the matter of the story is. I write, I've also written horror for children. Okay, and what you discover writing the City of Ghosts series horror that is shelved in middle schools for children is this. Young readers are so brilliant at putting something down when it isn't for them. They are so good, and this is a crucial time period at which they are learning. Like all readership is an empathy engine. All readership, it helps expose us to stories that aren't ours, to lives that aren't ours. It is a crucial threshold for empathy, but it is also an insult to those young readers when parents do not let their children develop the autonomy and the agency to comprehend the stories that are for them and that appeal to them and that mean something to them. And all it does is, just, to me, show a failure of parenting. Because what you're essentially doing is trying to put blinders on your child that they will take off, that society will take off. Books are the safest place to be afraid the safest place to be exposed to ideas that make you uncomfortable. And they make the adults uncomfortable. Because like I say, the kids can put it down. The kids are incredibly good at figuring out what makes them uncomfortable. It's the adults which are projecting their own discomfort on that. And it is just poor parenting, in my opinion, to do anything to get in the way of a child understanding their relationship to reading material, understanding that the power they have, that they will never have in life to close a book when it scares them, when it upsets them, that is a power that they only get to have in relation to the thing they're reading because when bad things happen in the world around them, when scary things happen in the world around them, when hard things happen in the world around them, they don't have that power. But here you have a potential setting for them to have that experience, for them to do it on their terms and you're depriving them of that. To me, that's just horrific parenting. So I think in a minute here, we're, we're just about to go to questions from the audience. So if you have questions you'd like to ask Victoria, we're going to have microphones lined up on either side. If you have any mobility challenges and can't get out of your seat or don't feel comfortable getting out of your seat, just keep your hand in the air. We'll bring a microphone to you. We want to make sure everyone has a chance to ask questions if they'd like to. As we go to the audience for questions, I just wanted to share with the audience this quote that you gave to The Guardian, which I thought ran really true about being an authentic writer, but also just about being an authentic person. Um, and this is the quote. For a long time, I feared that the more I wrote what I wanted to write, there would be a smaller audience. Instead, I found there are a huge number of people out there who are as strange and morbid and weird as I am. <laughs> it's incredibly rewarding to find <laughs> my readership in that strange place. Um, I think you've done that, and I think you've given courage to other people to do that. So thank you for doing that, and thanks for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. And... Thank you, Beth. And I just want to say, because I know I always have a really good percentage of writers in the audience, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, only because a lot of writers hesitate to call themselves writers if they've had nothing published. That's a job. Don't worry about that. If you're writing, you are a writer. If you are making time for your craft and your art, you are a writer. And I think there is a fear that comes with writing that you need to predict what other people want to read. And I can only beg you to put that fear away and to write what you want to read. 
Because the fact of the matter is that one day, if you are published, yes, there will be readers, but you can never write for them. I love you all, and I am so glad you're here, but I do not write for you. When I'm sitting down and it's me and the computer, I cannot write for you. There are so many of you, and each and every one of you wants something different from a story. And the act would be sheer mediocrity if I tried to manage that. So all I do when I sit down is write the story that I 150% want to read, and that specificity and that passion comes through in a way that guessing audience will never come through. So please, I beg you, if, there is this, if you want to write, ask yourself first and foremost, what do you want to read? And then write that. And on that note, we're going to open it up to questions. And I know this is scary, but I know some of you are going to be very brave and go to the podium or go to the one of this or this or raise your hand and we will come to you. I feel like I should play a theme song, but the only theme song I can think of is the opening song to the X-Files because I played it in the car on the way here <laughs> to explain to somebody how scared it made me when I was a child because I would go to bed and my parents would put it on in the other room and I would just hear that little weird <laughs> instrumental. I thought that was like your hype music. No, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, which side do we start? Uh, yeah, how about we start right here? Is there any book that you wrote that really surprised you in the sense of, I'm putting this out, I love it, nobody's going to like it. And you're like, damn it, they yes. all loved it. Yes, Vicious, Vicious. Yes. So here's what you have to understand, Vicious was never supposed to be published. Yes. I wrote Vicious over the course of three years when publishing as an industry was just beating me down. And I was about to quit. I was gonna quit writing and I decided that I would just write one last thing and instead of caring what anybody else wanted, I would just write for myself. And the result was this super weird, dark, supervillain thesis statement about it's not what we do, it's why we do it. It was a question of, as a craft exercise, can I make you root for somebody horrible? Which it turns out I can. <laughs> anyway, and I sent it to my agent only when I was done with it, only when it had served its purpose for me. And my agent said, there is no way anyone is going to publish this. And I said, I know, but we should probably try because I, I wrote it and I'm leaving now. <laughs> Bye-bye. And, um, and Tor bought the book, but you need to understand that even after my publisher bought Vicious, they said to me, it got back to me, let's put it that way, they did not think a single person would buy this book. You're kidding. No, they bought Vicious as an investment in whatever I happened to write next because they wanted me on the hook for it because they were like, we think you're interesting though. We don't think anyone's going to buy this, but that's okay because we'll go ahead and like do this deal so that you have what's called an option book, which means that they get first look at whatever you write next. So nobody thought that anyone was gonna read this book. And then it sold the exact same number of copies every six months for 10 years. Oh my God. So. <laughs> That's crazy. That's so great. I wish the audience could have seen how indignant she was. <laughs> that people weren't individuals. Okay, right here. Hello. Hi. Um, so now that you're getting into TV movie things, and we're all very excited, of course, <laughs> and we're all very excited that more fantasy and like sci-fi is getting made, are you worried that they will adaptate your work in a way that we have seen previously in other shows? Yeah, of course. Of course, here's the thing. It's a deal with the devil, right? Like, when you're writing a novel, you are God. Of the thing that you're writing, you are. You have, an, you have editors, they have voices, you are working with a team, but at the end of the day, your name's on the cover, it's your choice. Nothing goes in this book that I do not 110% believe in. When you go into adaptation, you are the smallest god in the world's largest pantheon. And you, it is very, very hard to have a say because you are not putting up the money. A Darker Shade of Magic, which I wrote the script for and turned in right before the writer strike, so we're, we're working. Um, that is realistically a $100 million movie. There's no indie version. There's no A24 version of A Darker Shade of Magic. Trust me, I wish. And that means that that's, that's the bigger the money, the harder it is to have a cohesively beautiful and authentic project because there's too many cooks in the kitchen. The only ways you can mitigate it, one, you never let anything be adapted of your work, which is a choice. Two, you do your best to make sure that the people you're working with, your proxies, the ones who will have a say in the room, are as protective of the work as you are. Historically, I have not had as much of a say as I would like. Moving forward with Shades and with Addie, I have as much say as I physically can, which is still to say not nearly as much as the people putting forward $100 million. 
but I am very, very fortunate. Like the Addie LaRue director is more protective of the characters than I am. The Addie LaRue director reads and watches basically every single post that gets put up on TikTok and on Instagram about Addie LaRue. Probably she should stop doing that because it's really stressful. Um, <laughs> there are no guarantees. The smaller the budget, the higher the likelihood of a work that is authentic and beautiful. But here's what I will say. The best adaptations, in my opinion, are not one-to-one -one adaptations of a, of a work. They have to change to fit the medium. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle, one of my favorite books and one of my favorite movies, not the same at all. Different artist's vision of the same story. So the only thing I would caution you is don't be eager to say, I hope they don't ruin the book. Because they can't, because they're not burning it. Like, they're not destroying it. The book will always be the book. What they're going to do if and when they do it, if it gets across that finish line, is envision something hopefully compatible. And my job as I work with them is not to manage the plot. Plot details can and will and must change. Do you see how long this is? What my job is to manage the characters and to make sure that the characters are the ones that you love. Um, yeah, so I've, I've worked in books and publishing for 15 years now, and um, I really thought it was interesting when you started talking about Neil Gaiman because other than American Gods, when I picked up A Darker Shade of Magic was the first time I've read fantasy for years, but it was one of the few times that I've connected to fantasy. Oh, good. And I, so I just wanted to thank you for that first. But also, you know, you mentioned writers, or I'm sorry, readers for years asked you, you know, what about the favor that's out there? And now you've mentioned that you're going to return kind of to Addie LaRue and exploring immortality, but from a different perspective again. Do you write purposely leading, leaving these trails because you say, oh, I want to make that another series, or I want to return to that concept, or is it you leave that open so you have that ability to go back if you want to explore? So I am a, a monster, and I write all my books backwards. I, I plan the endings first, and then I rewind the story to find the start. That means I don't really do anything on just opportunism. I don't really do anything lightly. In fact, when I came up with the favor and decided that I was going to leave that plot thread open, I did not know that I was going to write Threads of Power at that moment. I knew that it was a small enough plot point that I could leave the door cracked in case a future me wanted to come back. But it was only because I was getting to the end of Shades of Magic and realizing I was just already nostalgic. I realized that it's such a big world and such a big story, and one of the things that interests me so much about characters is evolution. Like, when we meet them, everything that has happened to them informs who they are and how they behave. And so I had wound so many characters backward through flashback, and I wanted to start rolling them forward in time. And I really wanted the opportunity to look at how time changes a magical system, a world, a political system, my characters. But usually, like, with a standalone novel, I know. Like, Addie is a standalone novel. It will always be a standalone novel. The only caveat I can think is not actually a story about Addie and Luke, but the fact that Luke belongs to a pantheon. And we know that because it's described in the book that he is an old god, and old gods are in pantheons. So I could see myself exploring <clears throat> another aspect of the pantheon, but no, I don't, I don't usually leave doors ajar for myself because I work everything backward from the ending that I want to achieve. Great, thanks. Great, thank you, and right over here. Awesome. Hi. Um, so according to your definition earlier, I'm also a writer, obviously yes. not published, but yeah. I wanted to um, just ask you how your writing process has kind of changed over the years and what advice you would give to hopeful writers, I mean, okay. published writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my writing process has become shockingly more neurotic uh, with me. They don't tell you that the more books you write, it doesn't get easier. If you're doing it right, it actually gets harder because you're continuing to push yourself. And Ira Glass has this really beautiful quote about how like your ability is kind of always one step behind your taste. Um, I encourage you to look it up. It's an incredible, like 60 second clip. Um, look up like Ira Glass and artists or something, or like craft. But I, I'm a perfectionist, specifically on a word level, on a sentence level. Yeah, and it can get really hard, right? Because perfectionism tends to be like, um, like your tire spinning in mud. As soon as you lose momentum, you can't start again because it's imperfect. And the, the most brutal thing is that the act of writing a book is an act of like, active failure because it's an act of controlled imperfection. You have this beautiful, perfect idea in your head and the act of writing it down is the act of making something imperfect by nature because it's real. And I found that as time goes on, I have a harder time dealing with imperfection. And so my latest hack, 
This is my process now. I outline the entire book, scene by scene, so that I have my roadmap. And then each day when I sit down to write my chapters, I tell myself I'm not writing. I'm just outlining. Because outlines are not perfect. Outlines never have to be perfect. Outlines are just blueprints. So I will be like, I'm not writing. None of these words are book words. These are just outline words. These are just ideas. And what will invariably happen is about five minutes into outlining a scene, I'll have a really good line of dialogue. And I'll be like, okay, well, that can stay. But the rest of it's just an outline, right? And a few sentences later, I'll have like a really nice description. I'm like, okay, that can stay. No, invariably what happens is that I end up smoothing over the outline and I have a scene. So like, trick yourself is guess what I'm saying. Tell yourself it doesn't have to be precious. Tell yourself to make purposefully structural choices. Um, as far as my advice for aspiring authors, the best thing you can do is get to the end. Like truly, it sounds so simple to say, but 99% of writers who set out to write a novel will never finish the novel. They will get 50% of the way in and they will get a shiny new idea and they will follow the shiny new idea away from the book they're writing and they will start the shiny new idea and they will get 50% of the way in and they will get a shiny new idea and they will follow it away from the book they're writing. And this will happen indefinitely because writing books is hard and at some point you're gonna get bored because the shine is wearing off and you and only you are becoming familiar with the material. Resist. Put the shiny new idea in a file and make it wait and if it's still good when you finish, then yay. It might not be. Shiny new ideas are really tricky. But get to the end. And if you can get to the end, you can make it better. And I will actually, like, I need the end because on bad days it will keep me from quitting. And on good days, I know there's a finite amount of distance I have to cover between wherever I am in the book and where the ending is. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, just in closing, would you let these folks know what's coming next for you? So we know there's going to be more to this trilogy. Yes. But anything else coming down the pipeline you want to let people know so about? So here's the order, if I do it right. Okay, so Fragile Threads has just come out. My next novel, which I lovingly call Bones, um, which is not the real title, a.k.a. Toxic Lesbian Vampires, will come after that because it's a standalone and I really want another standalone. Fragile Threads 2, Vicious 3, yeah. <laughs> which is the end. It's the end, I swear. Um, and then Fragile Threads 3. So, and then hopefully by then I have another idea because I'm starting to get really freaked out that I'm going to run out of ideas. And potentially some film adaptations I mean, along yeah, the way. Yeah, ideally, um, to a couple that I can't talk about, and A Darker Shade and Addie are both like in development. So like, light a candle, say a prayer, whatever you do. <laughs> well, there is so much more to come from you, and we're yes. so grateful that you're here with what you have tonight. Everybody, Thank please, you. Victoria. Thank you. That was Beth Milligan talking with V.E. Schwab. Schwab's latest book is The Fragile Threads of Power. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org. And listen to past programs at interlockandpublicradio.org. For Interlock and Public Radio, I'm Linnea Melcarrick. <laughs>